I had someone say, God has no sawdust, that, um, that there isn't, like, from his works, there's not stuff that's just on the floor. Like, uh, he has no sawdust in his shop, um, which I thought was an interesting way to think. Um, so, uh, my name's Tim. I get to be pastor here, and we are, we've, we preach for weeks and weeks and weeks, for over a year in the book of Genesis, and ended it last week. And this week, we're going in a shorter series um, that will hopefully lead us to a series that will focus on Easter. So, so we'll be in this, this series, and then we'll, uh, believe it or not, Easter is, is at the end of March, and so uh, that is around the corner. Um, but what this series is about, we're calling it To the Church. Uh, we might have a graphic, but um, what the idea is, is what God has given to the church for our good. And what we're going to look at this first week is going to be through the eyes of Peter. Peter, one of the disciples, and Peter was arguably, some of you have seen the Chosen show, like it paints a, a beautiful picture of the relationship among the disciples and other followers of Jesus with Jesus. Um, and, but, and as we read scripture and we really see Peter, it's hard to see any other person closer to Jesus. So, so Peter is arguably Jesus' closest friend for the last three years for the ministry of Jesus' life. Peter is, is not just close to Jesus, but Peter sees so many of Jesus' miracles. Hears the Sermon on the Mount, hears Jesus' teaching, but sees the miraculous catch of fish sees the feeding of the thousands. Um, so he, he doesn't just see it, but he participates in it. You know, he's like, I was holding one of those, those, those uh, baskets when, when, there were, when, it, when like after we fed thousands, it was still full. Uh, then I, I remember what it feels like to pull in all of those fish after we'd spent a whole night fishing and, and nothing. And now we, it took all of our might to just bring the 153 fish into the boat. Peter actually is the only person in the New Testament outside of Jesus that walks on water, participating in Jesus' miracle until he takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts to sink. And so, so he kind of, kind of walked on water or took a few steps on water. Um, and Peter is overcome by fear. And at Jesus' greatest moment of need, Peter denies him. You know, I mean, imagine your best friend. Uh, then imagine, and maybe, this, maybe you've done this, maybe this has been done to you. At your greatest moment of need, your best friend actually, like, what wasn't just absent, but was like purposefully absent purposefully nowhere to be, purposely not wanting to be a part of your mess. And Peter denies Jesus. He deserts Jesus. He, from a comfortable distance, watches Jesus be arrested, watches Jesus uh, be tortured, be on trial, wrongfully accused, and be crucified. Peter weeps when he realizes what he's done. 
And when I thought about this week, this could have been the last we ever heard of Peter. Um, two things. Peter could have been thrown away by Jesus. Like Jesus could have been like, well, going to find a more reliable fella. Um, like Jesus could have canceled Peter, um, cut Peter out. And also, which we so often do, Peter could have been consumed by guilt and shame. And he could have convinced himself, Jesus doesn't want to ever see me again. I mean, this is, Jesus dies, of course, but even then Peter's aware of the resurrection. Jesus spends a month interacting with people, making sure everybody sees he's alive and well. And Peter could have been like, I'm so glad he's alive and um, I can't show my face around him can't show my face to his people. And um, man, um, he could have easily thought like, hey, those people would be better without me. I've proven myself to be insufficient when the moment was needed. And like I said with the sawdust, like thankfully God never throws people away. It's just the way he is. He never throws people away. And thankfully, Peter doesn't run away. God doesn't throw Peter away, and Peter doesn't run away. And look what happens in John 21. I said, we're going to be in 1 Peter, but first we're going to kind of take a a pit stop in John 21, starting verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, so Jesus catches fish himself post-resurrection. He's alive and well. He is a chef on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And verse 15 said, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other guys? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You can feel the humility in his voice. He doesn't mention, yeah, I'm your, I'm your top guy. I love you more than any of these other guys. He's like, you know that I love you. My comments comparing myself to the other guys, um, he's been humbled out of that. He said to him, Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Then verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I mean, we could... We could, spend the, we could spend four or five weeks just on this, on this and piecing it out. But what is happening is Peter and Jesus are reconciling. 
Jesus is not just tolerating Peter, and, but, but they're having an important conversation, and Jesus is, is stepping towards this imperfect man, and Jesus is calling this imperfect man back into his mission. He's not rubbing his face in it. He's not scolding him. He's not like, how dare you? What I did for you, what I brought you into, and that's how you treated me? He, he knows Peter's heart. He knows his repentant heart. And Jesus has forgiven Peter so thoroughly that he trusts him to feed his sheep. And he calls Peter to actively follow him. He's like, you love me? Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You're going to be crucified for it. Dot, dot, dot. Follow me. Let's go. Let's do this. Peter, so this conversation is happening around 33 AD. Okay? This conversation is happening about 33 AD, and there's kind of different ways that scholars and people try and like really detect in the text and what, what are we seeing here? They kind of study the ancient Roman world and the Roman Empire and Jewish custom and all this stuff. And then they look at the disciples who, were, who many of them were friends, related, all this stuff. And then look at so many of them. Peter's the only one that's married. Most of them aren't married. And then they look at like, okay, what's life expectancy? What's the average age people are married? All this stuff. So many things go into a educated guess that Peter is maybe in his late teens or very early 20s at 33 AD. So the disciples are less guys my age, and more like, like students at the well. Um, it, more like older students at the well than like um, old guys like me. And what is amazing here is if Peter is in his teens or at the latest, his, his, his early 20s, now we're going to go to the book of First Peter, which is 30 years later. So there's all sorts of reasons that, that we date the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter into the early 60s. And so this is 30 years later, which 1 Peter is likely written when Peter is older than me as a 45-year-old man. Like Peter's likely now in his early 50s. And the Nero persecution, Nero was an emperor who would end up uh, being responsible by what was happening there for killing both Paul and Peter in Rome. And what we see here is like, first of all, Peter might be like, I can't believe I've gone this long. <laughs> like based on what Jesus told me on the beach that day, you know, I've, I've been able to go 30 years and not be crucified yet. Um, but it, after writing, for, he's got maybe about two years left. Um, he writes First, Second Peter, really in the sunset of his life, and scholars believe that he he's that he there's some evidence of the way he talks about Babylon and that refers to Rome and different things. That Peter is actually in Rome, writing First Peter, and he is he is writing this, um, which I think is fascinating. Is it's like how did this farm boy? How did this, this guy who lived in rural Galilee and was a fisherman is now in the center of the Roman Empire 
in Rome, leading the church in Rome, the center of the empire, being a part of leading the church in Rome, and then he's writing letters to churches in the Roman Empire. And so Peter, God, God has used Peter over the last 30 years in these beautiful ways to feed his sheep, to tend the lambs. And what we know about First Peter is it's written to a rural region. That's why it's not called Ephesians, which is the city of Ephesus, or Colossians, the city of Colossae. It's called First Peter because it's written to a region by Peter that's a rural area in northern Mediterranean area. So it'd be east of Italy, and then there's a, a whole area there in the northern Mediterranean that this, that this is written to, to those churches, and what I love is to our church, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're, we're gonna just look at a couple sections of First Peter of what God has given to them than what he's given to our church. So this morning, we're going to start by looking at 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. And if you're kind of looking for where in your Bible, 1 Peter is really close to, it's in, in a group that's just the last books of the Bible. Verse 24 says, He himself, so Peter's writing about his best friend, who he hasn't seen for 30 years. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And feel free to leave this up for a while. So Peter saw Jesus' crucifixion, and I think when he wrote tree, he pictured the tree that he saw from a comfortable distance, the wood that Jesus was nailed to, seeing his best friend who had radically changed him seeing him die on that tree, Peter has since learned so much. God has taught Peter so much in the last 30 years. And one of the things that he realized was what was happening that day was that his sins were being borne by Jesus, carried by Jesus to the tree. And because Jesus has taken our sins and he has paid for our sins on the cross that we can actually die to the power of sin over us. See that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We can actually live in a right relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the tree. And how this, is, how this happens is what is theologically known as imputed righteousness. I know it's a weird phrase, but imputed, I think maybe like amputated means taken off. Imputed is put, put in. 
imputed righteousness. And what it means is that all of Jesus' righteous acts, all he did living his life in our place, dying the death, bearing our sins on the tree, the Father saying, I am well pleased, I accept his sacrifice, he has bought your souls for God. All of those right actions, all of Jesus' righteousness actually gets put into our account. And like if our life was a bank account with all these lines, when someone logs into your account and looks at the account of your life, what, what we are seeing here and what imputed righteousness means in the book of Romans and other, so many areas in scripture teach into this, which is that, that Jesus's righteousness is what gets in our account. And all of our, all of our unrighteous things, they're gone. They were paid for. They were deleted from the ledger. So when God looks at our life, he doesn't see our battle with sin. When God looks at our life, he doesn't see our battle with sin. When God looks at our life, he sees Jesus' victory over sin. That we might live in this righteousness. Then Peter quotes Isaiah 53 in this moment. To, and I've, man, I've, 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 I've wrestled with this quote in this place, First Peter is known as, just so you know, it's known as, if you say, what is First Peter about? They'd say suffering. That's what it's about, suffering. And so in this quote, Isaiah 53, in this moment to this church, and this is Peter feeding Jesus' sheep. He tells those who have given their lives to Jesus, receive Jesus' life, receive Jesus' righteousness. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Look at that. By his wounds, you have been healed. I, you know, I've looked up like, this is in the past tense. This verb is in the past tense. It's already happened. We, like, if I said, like, honestly, raise your hand and say, I am healed. There is no wounds in my life. There is no wounding in my bank account. <laughs> you know, like truly, like my finances are healed. They look perfect. You know, emotionally I am healed. Every relationship I have has been pure, purely healed. Like we would be lying. We are a people who are still broken in so many ways. We are people who still sin. There are still ledger, like they're, they're still being Sinned, 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 sinned. His righteousness is imputed, and that's our account is staying. He's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west, and we still sin. And we are people who suffer, and we deceive ourselves if we think otherwise. We deceive ourselves if we say we are without sin. And ultimately, spiritually, eternally, a work has been done so deeply inside of each of us. Peter knew it, felt it, had decades to, to, to live it, even as he sinned, and we have, we have accounts of him sinning in the book of Acts. But there is a work that's been done so deeply inside of each of us that when we put our faith in Jesus, 
God, as the, as the author of 1 Peter, Peter, as the co-author of 1 Peter, can say, by his wounds, you have been healed. We are a room of people who are a healed people. And one thing that I didn't see this till later in the week is that every you that's mentioned in 1 Peter 2 is plural. When so often when we read scripture, we think, oh, this is like God's letter directly to me. And it is. And when 1 Peter 2 is being written, it's being written to the room. Every you, for you were straying. It's true for the room. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the, she- to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. True for the room. By his wounds, you have been healed. Plural you. It's to the room. Peter brings from here, he brings in the sheep imagery, the shepherd image. And it's a way of thinking. It made me wonder, like, when he talks about sheep, when he talks about shepherd, is he thinking about that day on the beach when Jesus could have so righteously pushed him away, but instead brought him back into his mission? And just as Peter had strayed, just as Peter had denied Jesus at Jesus' greatest moment of need, what I love is look at what Peter writes. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You can tell, like, Peter doesn't have a memory of Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus and I really... Man, we really stirred it up 30 years ago. Oh, man, things we did got us into so much trouble, killed my best friend. So many of my other friends have died. But, man, that thing 30 years ago, man, let let me tell you about it. Wish you guys were there. You guys would have really loved to know him. You don't get that from Peter at all. You get, he's been with him every day since then you get a reality of Peter's relationship with Jesus that as Jesus was ascending, the nature of him being omnipresent, uh, the nature of that being uh, a true thing about God is that his presence is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go, there's no depth you can go where Jesus isn't there. There's, there's nowhere you can go to flee from his presence. And I love how Peter is like, hey, all of you guys, we're straying like sheep, me included, but have now, like the church, to the church, like you have now returned to the shepherd. I love he doesn't say a shepherd, but you've returned to the shepherd, the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Instead of Peter being buried by his sin, he lets the death and burial of Jesus bury his sin. And Jesus' resurrection is the new life Peter is living in, the new life we're living in. And Peter is actually able to feed the sheep in these churches. What he's feeding them is letting them know, hey, I'm a sheep, 
your sheep. The shepherd, the shepherd is the overseer of our souls. The shepherd is the one that is leading us. As we are straying, we have returned. They've returned to a person who is alive and well, Jesus. I love how Jesus is presently, right now, the shepherd of their souls, the shepherd of our souls, the shepherd of the souls of the room, the overseer of our souls, the shepherd who feeds the sheep, who protects the sheep, who leads the sheep, who oversees the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd of Sacred Mission Church. Like, I could be the most rock star, amazing shepherd of a church. I'm not, but if I was, this church would be in deep trouble because I can't be the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That is not my role. For our church to be as our church has been designed, what God has given to the church is you have the shepherd and you have the overseer of our souls and that is Jesus. Like he has to, if you're like, hey, who's the shepherd at Sacred Mission Church? Jesus. Like that should always be like, not even let people finish the sentence. Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls of our church. That's true for the churches of rural northern Mediterranean and the church here. Jesus alone is the only one who can say, I am the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I love how Peter is like, to a, a, a region that was starting to face deep persecution and suffering. And Peter knowing this is probably what Jesus talked about, and I'm probably on the outs here, but I've had a 30-year go of it. And to say, for me to feed the sheep, for me to, to, to point to what has been given to the church, he is alive and well. I might be fading, he is not. Um, I've known him for 30 years. I want you to walk with him for 30 years too. And he is, is up for that. So now, 1 Peter 5. This is kind of a passage that a lot of times gets pointed to for church leadership and stuff. Jesus is going to uh, mention to us, to our church, other shepherds that are given to the church. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So with Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, it's fascinating that Peter then uses the exact same two words and says there are elders, pastors of a church who are to shepherd, first word, 
and exercise oversight. Overseer and oversight is the same word, just different grammatical forms. So as these leaders in a church aren't supposed to just be like leaders, they're, they're actually following the shepherd. And what elders in a church are, are with the shepherd, they are the under, under, under shepherds of the church who are to be following the shepherd and they are serving the church in a way that are, are, are under shepherds, but the, and they are giving oversight willingly. Uh, no one should ever be like drug into that place. God has appointed this. Their motive should never be shameful gain. I shouldn't be like, I want to be a pastor because of all the money involved, <laughs> you know, which is usually not the way people think about. Um, but there can be shameful reasons to say, like, I want that. I, I want the pulpit. I want the power. I want, I want all of these things. And it's like, God, rip that out of us. And they should be eager to lead because they're following the leader, not in a domineering way, but being humble examples. And even the last few months, this is like, these verses have kept coming back to me where it's like, God, would you, would you show me what to do here because I want to be an example to the church. I, I, I want to be able to say like, hey, I'm following Jesus. Would you follow me as I follow Jesus? I'm doing it imperfectly, but I am seeking to grow here. I want to be that way. I'm called to be that way. And would all the future elders, as God would raise up elders in our church, and we'll talk about more of that next week too. Um, Lord, would you allow, we, none of us will be perfect, but would we be humble examples if you call uh, a, a multiple pastors, future elders, as, as it's alluded to here, this should, should be becoming a plural group of people. And for the future elders, current elders of Sacred Mission Church to be humble examples because the chief shepherd is coming. And he's got crowns with him, unfading crowns of glory. And whether that's literal, uh, real crowns for not just elders, but for everybody, like we're to be actually like, like anticipating that in a way that's actually affecting our lives and how we live now. And the church ought to follow the elders as the elders follow Jesus. And what I love here is it like, it's not like alluded to, it's actually spoken of. This takes all of us to actually be clothing ourselves in humility, to actually follow Jesus, follow other non-Jesus people as, as under-shepherds are all seeking to be like, hey, let's, let's go together. Let's be plural you together for what has been given to the church. And it takes Humility to just be on us at all times, as much of our clothes are on us, humility on us to be able to live this out. Then verse six, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let me read it one more time and think about, Jesus, about Peter and Jesus' relationship 30 years after he saw him, but 30 years of him walking with him. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he, he may exalt you. Spoken from a guy who knows he's going to be killed soon, even. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Peter, it, the care that Peter felt on the beach, you can feel has only grown over the decades. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What I love here is our humbling ourselves is not, you're not humbling yourself under my authority. You're not humbling yourself under my leadership. Uh, and I'm not wanting to do that. We're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, our shepherd and overseer, and our anxieties are not cast on each other. I love how he words that too. Like, like with, this, with what we've been given, our anxieties aren't, like, aren't to be put on me. I'm not to put my anxiety on you, but we're to put our anxieties on him. Which is, you know, it doesn't even say, if you happen to come across any anxiety, in the rare case you do, cast it on him. It's like, cast all of your anxieties that all of us have about kids and work and future and past and present. And like, all, like let's just cast it on him, just like we would cast a lure. Like, let's just like, zing it all to him. On the shepherd, not on the under shepherds, on the shepherd, we're all doing this. We're actively resisting one person. We have one enemy. We're not each other's enemies. People out there aren't our enemies. We have one enemy, Satan, and we are to resist him. He is seeking to devour us, and we are seeking to push him out and resist him, locking arms together in the plural to resist him. What I found fascinating with this is like a world where we have a right relationship with the shepherd and overseer of our souls who has healed us. A world where, let's say, theoretically, the under-shepherds of the church are leading in the healthiest of ways caring for, for the church in the most healthy way, a world where these things are in place in the healthiest way we can imagine is still a world where we're suffering. First Peter 5 is telling this, this, like with the shepherd and overseer of our souls who's healed us, with even everything given to the church is still a world where we suffer and where we actually shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised when we suffer and realize this is happening everywhere to all of us. 
and this is the battle, and we are resisting the enemy. And we're not doing that from a distance from Jesus. But what I love is Jesus calls us to himself in the battle. He's like, hey, right here by my side. You know, we, silly example, but it's just what popped into my head, is one of our dogs, Bella. We've, our dogs are not trained in a lot of areas, but Bella is trained in a way that if, if anywhere in earshot, we yell, heal. We paid $800 for her uh, several years ago to spend a month in training where uh, we didn't know this was like the one thing we were getting from it, but like when we yell, heal, Anywhere she is, she will run as fast as she can and just sit right next to us with her body against our leg and just sit like this, you know? And um, now she might have just done the most naughty thing before that, but when we say heal, boom. And um, I just, silly example, but the gift to, like truly the greatest gift to the church is Jesus is saying that to us all the time. (laughs) Right at my heel, you know, right at my heel. I am the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That wasn't true back then. It's as true, just as for Peter, it's true 30 years later as it was when, when they were having breakfast together face to face. And that he says, remain right here, even in the midst of the greatest storm of suffering, until I raise you up in due time. Remain communing with me together. And he's, he's, when he says that, he says it to the plural. All you guys, heal. (laughs) Remain communing with him, knowing that he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be the power forever and ever. 30 years into Peter doing ministry with his best friend, he's pointing us to him. And um, Lord, I just ask in this moment that you would give us grace to commune with you, to be at your side for you to shepherd our soul in this moment, for you to oversee our soul in this moment, for us to place ourselves under the mighty hand of God in this moment, for us to cast all of our anxieties on you in this moment because you care for us. Would you give us the grace and closeness to you to be able to resist our enemy? Would you give us patience to stay, power to stay, at your side, even in the middle of suffering. When you say a little while, for some people that means decades. And you are the God of all grace who has called us into your eternal glory in Christ. You yourself by your hand will restore every one of us, confirm every one of us, strengthen each one of us, establish each one of us. Your power is never ending. And God, I pray that you would give us grace to just bring our lives to your side, to uh, even walk out of here, not walking away from you, but with you, walking out of this building, um, that we could together walk with you in this week. God, you are the author of our faith, and I just pray would you write a new entry today, authoring our faith in this direction, Jesus, we pray. Amen.